I hope that in the next 50 minutes or so, I can say something uh, at least thought-provoking and maybe even plausible about the topic of forgiveness. So that's what I'm going to try and do. And I'm going to try and persuade you um, in the audience of a number of things. One is the thesis that um, actually, to allude to what Rachel just said, I'm not convinced there was such a thing as forgiveness in the classical world, in the pre-Christian classical world. There was certainly such a thing as forgivingness, but forgiveness in the sense in which we have the concept, I'm not convinced was there, and I'll be arguing out some of the reasons why I think that. I want to try and persuade you, secondly, that there is actually a deep problem about the way in which in the Christian and post-Christian tradition, we tend, and that's the one that we live in, whether we like it or not, um, there is a deep problem about the notion of forgiveness and the accompanying notion of responsibility and culpability. The notion of responsibility and culpability that goes with the notion of forgiveness that we've inherited, I think um, is deeply problematic. I'm not entirely sure I know how to solve those problems, but I'm interested certainly in trying to tease out what the problems are. And the third thing I want to try and do today is to persuade you, if you're not already persuaded, that it's actually a truth about most of our important ethical concepts, and certainly this one, the concept of forgiveness. It's a truth about them that these concepts have histories, and those histories matter crucially to understanding what the concepts are. And I'd like it to be the case that we can do something with both sides of the um, ethical heritage that we find ourselves equipped with or lumbered with, depending on how you look at it today, both the classical pagan side and the Christian side, I'd like us to be able to deploy both in our own thinking. But what I want to say is that the history matters and it's not entirely straightforward how we are to do that. So um, I have a paper of about 20 pages, which you'll be delighted to hear I'm not simply going to read. I'm going to talk through it. Um, and I'm going to speak for about 45 minutes now in trying to make sense of this topic of forgiveness. Most of the time while I do this, I'll be looking not at the camera. I won't be able to see what's going on on the camera. I'll be looking instead at the paper. So um, uh, I, I can't in fact see the audience, but if Rachel were to pull a face of complete incomprehension and incredulity, I wouldn't necessarily see it. So please bear in mind in the way I deliver this that I can't see your faces. I think it's very important when you're delivering a talk in philosophy to pay close attention to your audience. But one of the things that is sacrificed in this way of doing things, excuse me, is that that isn't very easy for me to do. However, I will try to uh, be a little bit more interactive when we get to question and answer. Um, although I, I gather once moreover that in that case too, it's going to be direct interaction only with Rachel who will actually act as a moderator. So I want to start with um, a quotation from Bishop Butler. This divine precept, he says in his sermons, um, in the preface to his sermons, this divine precept to forgive injuries and love our enemies, though to be met with in Gentile moralists, yet is in a peculiar sense a precept of Christianity, as our Saviour has insisted more upon it than upon any other single virtue. 
And there I think Butler, if anything, is understating the contrast between Christianity and what he calls Gentile moralists, by which he means the non-Christian and especially the ancient Greek classical tradition of ethics. For the Christian ethical tradition is centered upon a thick ethical concept of forgiveness that is essentially narrative in structure and essentially contrastive in its characterization. And what I say about forgiveness in the Christian tradition, those two words, perhaps also the third word, redemptive, um, narrative, constructive, contrastive, redemptive, those are the ways that I want to encourage us to think about forgiveness in the Christian tradition. And thinking about those will bring out the difference with whatever is or isn't going on in the pagan Greek tradition. So Christian forgiveness is a story of spiritual transformation, of redemption, from complete lostness and wickedness to complete salvation and sanctification. You see this, for example, in the hymn Amazing Grace. It's a story about how some wretch was once lost, but now is found, how that wretch was once blind, but now they see. It's a story about the difference between being by one's own choice, an outcast and a downcast, eating husks in a pigsty, and being a rich man's beloved son and heir, wreathed and fated at a homecoming feast. There are lots of other stories. I'm alluding there to the parable of the prodigal son, um, as you may or may not know. There's the story of Zacchaeus, the short, very short tax collector in Luke 19. There's the tale of how Matthew and Peter came to be disciples. There's very familiarly the Damascus Road conversion of Saul into Paul in Acts chapter 9 a clear example of what in other research I call an epiphany. But it's a, it's a case of forgiveness. It's a case of redemption. And there are similar cases in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament too, where usually the focus is national rather than individual, a straying and unfaithful people turn back in repentance to their God who then restores them. And you can find that in the book of Nehemiah in 2 Chronicles 29, in 2 Chronicles 34, and in lots of places in the, the prophets, for example, in Isaiah and Zechariah. So what on this Christian conception is actually involved in the forgiving of sins? Um, English translations of the New Testament tend to create a misleading impression of uniformity, of lexical uniformity and therefore conceptual uniformity about forgiveness. The canonical English version is still the King James Bible of 1611, and in that version, in every successor translation known to me, the New Testament has the single verb forgive in English and the noun forgiveness to stand for at least two importantly different Greek words, aphiemi, which means to take away, to remove or cancel, and charistomai, uh, which comes from the, the root charis, meaning grace. Um, there's a third verb, apoluo, which means to dissolve, and that sometimes appears too. Aphiemi just means to take away, like tolerate in Latin. And apoluo means to dissolve, um, and often seems to be not much more than a verbal alternative to aphiemi. But charistomai means to do a favor to, to do a grace to, to treat kindly. And it doesn't necessarily mean forgive at all. It means to be gracious to, and forgiving someone is only one way, after all, of being gracious. Now that difference between charistomai on the one hand and um, Afiemi and Apollua on the other seems both obvious and crucial. It's one thing for me to forgive someone who does me wrong in the sense of being gracious or kind towards them. It's quite another for me to forgive someone in the sense of taking away Afiemi or dissolving Apollua, 
their wrongdoing. Grace and kindness um, towards each other when we get things wrong are fortunately commonplace in ordinary human life. But the power to take sins away, to cancel them or dissolve them, to make it as if they haven't happened at all, that sounds like a miraculous power, perhaps the power of altering the past or maybe just the moral valence of the past. Um, at the very least, it seems to involve altering my own moral beliefs about and my stance towards what's after all still the same misdeed. It's hard to see how anyone but God could do that, could do that or anything like it um, and do it without some kind of injustice or falsification of the moral record or contradiction of previous moral verdicts. When Jesus says in Luke 5.21, to a man whom he heals, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees' response is to protest, only God can say that. So this idea of the cancellation of sin um, already seems problematic. There's already in the literature something called the paradox of forgiveness, which is that when you forgive, you seem to be um, taking to yourself the right to um, do away with sins, to do with wrongdoings or misdeeds and say that it's okay that they happened. And on the one hand, that seems like a good thing to do, a kind thing to do. And on the other hand, it seems like a, an impossible thing to do and an unjust thing to do. If injustices have really been committed, then you shouldn't be going cancelling them. Tea pause. Um, that, isn't, that paradox of forgiveness isn't my focus here, as we'll see. I think there are paradoxes about forgiveness, but that one, although it's kind of relevant to what I'm saying, it's not at the focus of what I'm saying. Anyway, in the Christian narrative of forgiveness that you get in the Bible, we go by God's grace from one contrastive extreme to the other, from the depths of depravity, of lostness in our sins, as Ephesians 2.1 puts it, to the heights of redemption in the new creation. So David Constant, in his book Before Forgiveness, on which I'm heavily dependent in this talk, I owe a lot to David Constant's account, he argues that our modern notion of forgiveness has its sources um, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, but not in the Bible. He thinks that the great change came in the time of Kant or not long before. I disagree with Constant about that. I think our conception of forgiveness goes together with the conception of clear-eyed wrongdoing that's canonically formulated in the writings of St. Augustine following St. Paul. So something like our conception of forgiveness, I think depends, it's forgiveness of wrongdoing and it's wrongdoing of a particular kind because the concept of that kind of wrongdoing is a lot older than the Enlightenment, when Constant dates the conception of forgiveness, the modern conception of forgiveness too. I think the conception of wrongdoing and the conception of forgiveness go together. And I think they've both been around a lot longer than since the Enlightenment, when Constant uh, places the dawning of these notions. But I do think Constant's right about this. The forgiver-forgivee relationship, at least as regards the taking away of sin, was paradigmatically the one between believer and God until the Enlightenment. And then in the Enlightenment, we came to have the idea that we're all citizens in a republic, a kingdom of ends, and each of us becomes able to make the moral law ourselves, and each of us becomes, therefore, capable of forgiveness in the strong sense of taking away sins. Anyway, I, I don't wish to get distracted into an exegetical battle with Constant. I'm merely marking out there a difference that I have with him. I think because the notion of forgiveness, because the notion of wrongdoing that's distinctively Christian goes back a lot further than the Enlightenment, so too does the notion of forgiveness. 
which Constant says only comes at the Enlightenment. I think it's a lot older than that, but I agree with Constant that in the ancient world, forgiveness of the taking away wrongdoing sort, the apaluo sort, that was something that um, only God could do. Well, anyway, these ideas that I'm rehearsing here, they're not central to the classical Greek ethical tradition. Most of them are not there at all. We might plausibly say that in pagan ancient Greek ethics, there's not much evidence of any concept of forgiveness. The nearest approach is that there's some kind of an idea of gracious kindness towards those who do us wrong. But in its pagan Greek version, this doesn't commit us to a narrative, contrastive, redemptive framework. There isn't the stories that you get of moral and spiritual redemption through forgiveness, which are so central to the gospel narrative and to other Christian narratives, um, Christian ways of telling um, something we all do, tell, telling your own story, the story of your life, amazing grace is a case in point. That's the tale of John Newton's life, and it's a tale of redemption through forgiveness. In the pagan Greek world, there isn't this idea that forgiveness of wrongdoing can be so central to uh, one's life. There are, of course, ways to be redeemed or to be transformed, but that isn't particularly one of them. It doesn't come via forgiveness in the Christian sense or wrongdoing in the Christian sense. And above all, there is in pagan Greek ethics no notion of the kind of wrongdoing that at least Augustinian Christianity later came to focus on. And let me give some evidence for this negative claim about ancient Greek philosophical ethics. Let's start with Socrates. Um, it's worth starting with Socrates amongst other reasons because Plato's Socrates is famously supposed to be a kind of parallel to Jesus. Um, and so it's true, and this is perhaps what Bishop Butler had in mind in the quotation I started with. It's true that Plato's Socrates tells us to do good to our enemies as well as to our friends in the Crito and in the Republic, at least he says that. He says that we shouldn't return evil for evil that's in the Crito too. He says that it's better to suffer injustice than to do injustice. That's in the Gorgias, most famously. And these certainly sound like Christ's injunctions to his followers or Christian injunctions. Compare in particular, Matthew 5, 38 to 48. On the other hand, we might also say that these um, injunctions to do good to our enemies as well as our friends, not to return evil for evil, to prefer suffering injustice to doing injustice, we could equally say that those all sound like Buddhist or Confucian teachings, or the teachings of any of the great religions where they've remained close to what Lewis calls the Tao in the appendix to his Abolition of Man. He has a useful uh, uh, list of some near universally accepted ethical maxims, which he thinks all people hold in different ways. So these rules, these, these injunctions about not returning evil for evil, turning the other cheek, these are common moral property. Um, it's not just Socrates and the Christians who have them in common. And we should notice too what Socrates doesn't say in the passages of Plato I've just cited. Socrates does say that we should harm nobody and do injustice to nobody, never mind whether they're friends or enemies. He doesn't say that we should love our enemies. He does say that we should have a steady disposition of benevolence to all people, whatever. He says that instead of saying that we should love them. That's a little bit like the Christian emphasis on gracious kindness to those who do us wrong, the charisma,i sense of forgiveness. But the disposition that Socrates commends is indeed a steady one. There's no thought for Socrates of dramatic redemption stories, transformation 
narratives or conversion narratives that you get in the Christian account. Nor does Plato's account of Socrates give us any examples of forgiveness narratives like that. So the stress on forgiveness is in the Christian sense is strikingly missing from the narrative that's supposed to be analogous to the Passion of the Christ, namely the narrative of Socrates' trial and execution. In the Passion of the Christ, we famously have the words from the cross, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they do. By contrast, we have the narrative of Socrates' trial and execution at the end of the Phaedo, 116b to d. And the, I, I won't try and read the whole quotation, but the jailer comes in, the one who's due to deliver the poison to Socrates and enforce his execution, and says, Socrates, I won't find in you the fault I find in other prisoners, that you're angry and curse at me when I give you the order to drink the poison, as I am compelled to do by, your government, by our government. For I've seen that you are in every way the noblest and gentlest and best, genioteton, kaipraoteton, kairiston, man who's ever been in this prison. So I know well that you are not angry with me because you know who's to blame and you're angry with them. But since you know what message I've come with, the message is of course, it's time to die, farewell and try to bear as easily as you can what you are compelled to bear. He broke down and cried and Socrates looked after him and said, you farewell too, we ourselves will see to it. And he added to us, to Socrates followers, how courteous the man is, all through my imprisonment here, he's been visiting me for discussion every now and then. He's been the best man, and how nobly, Genaios, he mourns for me. But Crito, let's do what he says. Someone go and get the poison, um, if it's been mixed, or if not, let the slave mix it. Now, crucially, what happens between Socrates and the jailer here is not a narrative of forgiveness. By that, I don't just mean that it's not about the Christian con concept of forgiveness. I mean the passage isn't about forgiveness at all. The officer of the Eleven does not accept that he's to blame for Socrates' death and asks Socrates to forgive him. He says that someone else is to blame and that Socrates knows it and is angry with them. What the officer asks for is not forgiveness, the lifting of resentment or condemnation for an act responsibly done, but exculpation, recognition that it was not an act responsibly done. And sometimes in this paper, I'm going to make a distinction between forgiveness and exculpation. Forgiveness is the case where um, you see that someone did something bad and you, you, you stop blaming them, you stop being angry with them, you stop holding a grudge against them or something like that. Um, you treat their wrongdoing against you as if it is over, as if it doesn't matter anymore, as if it's not wrongdoing anymore, perhaps. That's forgiveness. Exculpation, on the other hand, is recognizing that there wasn't anything to forgive. It's recognizing that what happened was something for which the agent was not fully responsible. So the officer asks Socrates to exculpate and Socrates exculpates. He responds like he has nothing to forgive the officer. And Socrates shows no sign of blaming or resenting either the officer or despite the officer's suggestion, anyone else either. Nor do we get any sign of that in the Crito where Socrates never even considers the injustice that has been done to him, let alone the question whether he should forgive it. So Socrates certainly displays what we might call forgiving, forgivingness, but he doesn't display forgiveness because he doesn't think um, that uh, something that has been done to him that merits forgiveness. To say that Socrates forgave his enemies would put us back in a narrative contrastive framework. It would be a case where we might see the people who are responsible for what they've done to him 
uh, being forgiven and somehow released from the burden of their wrongdoing by Socrates' forgiveness. It would be that kind of framework, but that's not the situation. There is no prior time at which Socrates condemned or judged those who do him wrong and later withdraws that attitude, perhaps because he's asked to, um, or otherwise perhaps because the malefactors show repentance or remorse for what they've done. Socrates' moral stance towards those who mistreat him is steady and unconditional on their moral stance towards him. It's an unwavering benevolence quite irrespective of how people act towards him. The philosopher says Theotetus 174d, as part of a verbal portrait of someone rather like Socrates, has nothing of his own to contribute to rhetorical denunciations of anyone because he knows no evil of anyone. He's never cared about that sort of thing and he's not interested in courtroom arguments about um, what injustice have I done to you, blah, blah, blah. Now, why does Socrates take this attitude? Why does he think there's nothing to forgive? I'm not going to major on this the, my answer to that question here, um, but very briefly, the answer is because Socrates believes that no one does wrong willingly. Udos, udes hekon hamartene is a formula that you get repeatedly in the Socratic dialogues. No one willingly goes wrong. And that point is clearly enunciated. It's a familiar point to classical scholars in Mino 77c to 78b, where what's spelt out, I, I won't quote that passage here, What's spelled out is that forgivingness is the right general attitude, not forgiveness, because vice is ignorance. Each of us wants to be happy, not miserable, live well, not badly. Desiring harm, desiring bad things, means desiring to be miserable and to live badly. So no one desires bad things as such. They desire them only because they falsely believe them to be good. So no one does wrong or bad things willingly in the sense that no one chooses them under the description, wrong or bad. The root of all bad action is false belief about which descriptions apply to what. So false belief is ignorance within the genus not believing what's true. False belief is the species believing what is not true. And on Socrates' view, since wrongdoing always involves false belief, we can infer from one thing that's called a Socratic paradox to another. We can go from new one, no one does wrong willingly to vice is ignorance. So there's nothing to be responsible for, nothing to blame, nothing to forgive, except ignorance in the sense just defined. And we can't say that anyone's responsible for their ignorance either. The whole idea of explaining how anyone can ever be responsible for doing bad things, in fact, begins to seem threatened. Um, so in the Mino, it looks like it's a matter of virtue, of courage and industriousness to do what we can to acquire knowledge and wisdom and shed ignorance and folly and therefore presumably vice. So it's a matter of courage and industry to seek knowledge and wisdom. And the explanation of failures to seek knowledge must then lie in the opposite vices, cowardice and laziness as opposed to courage and industry. But then how are we to explain the presence of these vices, cowardice and laziness, if no one goes wrong except through ignorance? The explanation must itself lie in a further instance of ignorance. Here we find no explanation of how anyone can be responsible for wrongdoing, only a regress in non-explanation. So that's a familiar Socratic view, and it's a fairly standard line in scholarly literature on Plato, that in Plato, these paradoxes are rejected. And I don't think that's right. People say that in the Republic in particular, Plato finds a way of accounting for Acrasia, 
explaining how someone can willingly and knowingly choose what they take to be wrong. The idea is that Plato allows for this possibility by admitting divisions within the soul. And you get that line at Republic 430e to 431a. And there's something like it in Phaedrus 246a and following. But does this make any more room for wrongdoing that involves responsibility, culpability? Unless it does, Plato's view has no need for the notion of forgiveness, strictly speaking. Unless it does, his is a view about exculpation, about the accepting of a reason why someone was not fully responsible for a bad thing that they did, not about forgiveness in the sense of accepting someone's apology for doing something bad that they were fully responsible for. On the Republic picture, I don't think that the partition of the soul, the division in the soul, I don't think it does make room for responsibility in that strong sense, the sense of wrongdoing that I've been identifying with the Christian tradition. On the Republic picture, what happens to someone whose soul is disordered is that in them logos, reason, is overwhelmed by thumos, spirit, or by the epithumiae, the passions, or by both. Um, and violently overwhelmed. When the parts of the soul, are, the, the various parts of the soul are not enlightened by the wisdom that comes from contemplating the form of the good, the lower parts of the divided soul sometimes, and perhaps most of the time, compel the reasoning part of it to act in line with them. That's not a picture in which someone fully responsibly chooses to do what they believe to be wrong and therefore seeks to be forgiven for it. It's a picture in which choices of what is understood to be wrong are compelled and therefore no more willingly made than they are for Socrates, who for whom such choices are made in ignorance. This conclusion, which I could spell out with more exegetical evidence, but I'll, I'll try and keep the, the pace up a bit. Plato, like many ancient Greeks, especially those influenced by Pythagore Pythagoreanism, believes in reincarnation. And with it, he believes in a doctrine much closer to what Buddhists call karma than to anything like the Judeo-Christian notion of forgiveness and redemption. In the myth of Ur that concludes the Republic, there is an afterlife reckoning for the misdeeds that people commit in their present incarnation. Your deeds in the present life determine your position on the great chain of being in the next life. What there is not is any question of forgiveness or redemption in the Judeo-Christian sense. And the parallel here with the great Indian religions is, I think, pretty striking. Um, and here's a quotation from an article I found online in a journal called Tricycle. The article's called Forgiveness is Not Buddhist. Karma, Ken McLeod says, the author of this article, karma is not based in transactions, it's based in, excuse me, evolution. Patterns of behavior set in motion by our actions in the world continue to evolve and shape our perception and predispositions. That process doesn't stop until we change our relationship with those patterns. There's no grace in the operation of karma, just as there's no grace in the operation of gravity. The only way to stop the evolution of reactive patterns is to change our relationship with the patterns. Well, there's no grace in Plato either. There's no free forgiveness for your past sins. You have to work your way through. Every misdeed has its price, and that price is both high. It's a tenfold penalty, Plato says what you do wrong and it's inevitably play, paid see republic 615 a to c in platonic justice there are no amnesties there's only expiation there's no forgiveness there's only forgivingness there's a benevolent willingness to understand how it is that people can't help doing bad things because they're ignorant or irrational or overwhelmed by untamed forces within them but there's no approach to the christian idea that someone might first 
be knowingly and intentionally committed to doing evil, then repent of this commitment, replace it with the commitment to the good, and by being forgiven, be absolved of guilt for the earlier negative commitment. In this sense, forgiveness isn't even on Socrates or Plato's ethical map. Nor is it on Aristotle's. I'm going to skip over much of what I have to say in the paper about Aristotle to keep up the pace. But the crucial thing in Aristotle is the notion of syngnome. Syngnome is the matter is, is a matter of understanding someone else's fault or misdeed, understanding how angry one should be about it, and understanding um, how it is that people come to do such things. So it's a kind of big spiritedness. He enunciates it in the Nicomachean Ethics of 1125a. Um, he enunciates the point as a point about great, spirit, great spiritedness, megalopsuchia. The great spirited man, he says, is not a grudge bearer, menesikakos. It's not a great spirited person's part to keep a record of other people's deeds, especially not their misdeeds, but rather to overlook them. To overlook other people's misdeeds is not to forgive them, rather it's to think them unworthy of my attention. Um, that's in line with the rest of what we hear in Socrates about the character and personality of the Megalosuchos, who, so far as he can, simply regards bad people as beneath him. There's also priates alongside Syngname in Aristotle, alongside the notion of being large-minded, being, as we often say, big enough to overlook some fault. There's priates, which is gentleness, and that's like forgivingness. Um, and this is discussed in the rhetoric, 138a, 6 to 7. People who are mild, um, they're mild towards those who demean themselves towards them and do not contradict them. For those people, the ones who demean themselves, seem to be admitting that they're inferior, and those who are inferior are fearful. A fearful person slights no one. This point that anger ceases towards those who demean themselves is shown even by dogs, who will not bite someone who sits down at their level. So here we have handy tips from Aristotle on dog training. If you don't want to be bitten, sit down next to the dog and lower yourself to its level. That will show your um, inferiority to the dog, and the dog will then be prowess, gentle towards you. It will treat you with consideration and with big-spirited benevolence instead of biting you. Perhaps it'll lick you in the face. Well, I'm not sure Aristotle has a great track record as a, a dog trainer, but anyway, that's an interesting aside. So when we repent, there's a loss of status involved. Um, and the, quite, the right response to that is priates. It all comes out of the notion of megalopsychia for Aristotle, which is the notion of being big-spirited big towards other, others. We're a long way here. We are in the, the territory of forgiving, forgivingness. We're not in the territory of forgiveness. We're in the, the territory of great-spirited, magnanimous, overlooking of sins or wrongdoings and faults. We're not in the territory of forgiving them in the Christian sense. Now, I'd like to talk about uh, two things in the rest of my time, and one of them is Homer. I want to say something about the cultural background to the ancient Greek philosophers thinking about forgiveness and forgivingness. I want to point out that a lot of the time when we read Plato and Aristotle and the other ancient Greek philosophers, we automatically, without realizing we're doing it, bring our cultural background to reading them. And so we tend to see them through Christian spectacles or post-Christian spectacles, we fail to see them through the material that they're dealing with through the spectacles that the ancient Greeks themselves were wearing. And um, this metaphor is going to get messy, but never mind. One very important pair of spectacles in this context is Homer. 
And in Homer, we have cases where um, it's very clear that what's being asked for is forgivingness and an end to hostilities um, in some shape or form, without the Christian notion of forgiveness being anything like in the picture. So in Iliad book 19, um, Achilles and Agamemnon have a reconciliation. Achilles says, look, it's disastrous for both of us that we're caught in this feud that we've been trapped in for the last 18 books of the Iliad. Let's set it aside and get back on with dealing with the Trojans because my friend Patroclus has been killed and I want to avenge his death. Um, so Achilles, and notice in that what Achilles is not saying to Agamemnon, he's not saying, you did me wrong, but I forgive you. Not at all. And Agamemnon's response, this is Iliad book 19, 83 to 90. Achilles gets this from Agamemnon. Um, I'll declare my mind now to Achilles. You other Greeks give heed and listen well. You who talked again and again of this feud and blamed me for it, says Agamemnon. I am not to blame. Blame Zeus, blame fate, blame the dark wandering furies who placed a fear delu fierce delusion in my mind before the whole assembly of the Greeks the day I took Achilles' prize away. What could I do? God works all things his way. Agamemnon comes as close as you can in his cultural position to an actual apology to Achilles, an actual request for forgiveness, but not that close. Agamemnon finds a way to avoid standing in his turn before the assembled army, which would lower himself to an equal level with Achilles. Achille Again, Agamemnon also finds a way to berate someone else, not himself or Achilles, but the unnamed other Greeks, who have no standing in this debate and can't talk back for daring to blame him. Above all, Agamemnon finds someone else to blame for his insult to Achilles. This is Zeus, fate, the Furies, and Arte, delusion, herself. Agamemnon is exculpating himself here. He's not asking for forgiveness. He's saying this wasn't my fault. He's saying this was the fault of the circumstances and it was the fault of the gods who put Arte in my mind. And then there's a second encounter that I'd like to talk about, but there isn't really time, from Iliad book 22, 24, where Achilles and Priam, the two leading uh, figures on the uh, Trojan and Greek side, come together in a kind of reconciliation. And it's a wonderful scene. Look it up. It's book 24, round about line 600. It's a wonderful scene, but it's not about forgiveness. It's about a kind of recon reconciliation, which has nothing specifically to do with forgiveness. So the moral that I want to draw up to this point, pagan Greek thinkers like Socrates, Plato and Aristotle, who inherited the deep and rich ethical resources of the Homeric tradition and its successors, had a thick ethical concept of forgivingness or reconciliation. What they didn't have was our Judeo-Christian narrative contrastive redemptive concept of forgiveness, a concept that I started with in section one. If there's a point of contact between pagan Greek thought and Judeo-Christian thought about forgiveness and related concepts, it's the notion of forgiveness as gracious kindness, charis. But as before, for the Christian tradition, all notions of forgiveness are narrative, contrastive and redemptive. They tell stories about journeys from moral benightment into God's marvelous light. And that's not how it is in pagan Greek thought. Now, to close, I have 12 minutes to make this point. What, to want to put, what I want to close by pointing out is there's something deeply problematic about at least some versions of the Christian concept of forgiveness as we've inherited it today. And particularly, I want to suggest Augustine's version of forgiveness and wrongdoing. So I'll talk freely from here on of the Augustinian concept of forgiveness, repentance, and so forth.
So the central problem that I have in mind, this is my paradox of forgiveness, not the paradox that normally goes under that name in the literature on forgiveness, which as I said at the beginning, is about um, saying something is all right when it doesn't seem all right at all, basically. The problem I have in mind, it's close to the surface in two familiar prayers of penitence, which you get one in the Catholic liturgy and one in the Anglican. The one in the Catholic Tridentine Mass um, is in Latin. It runs in English. I confess to God and the Blessed Virgin, the, the Blessed Mary, always a virgin, with all the saints, and to you, my Father, that by my fault, by my fault, by my most grievous fault, I have sinned. Mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa, peccavi. That comes from the Tridentine Mass, in case you're wondering. So by my most grievous fault, I have done wrong. And then the Anglican prayer, Almighty and most merciful Father, we've erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We follow too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We've offended against those holy laws, thy, thy holy laws. We've left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we've done those things we ought not to have done. And there is no health in us. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare thou those, O God, who confess their faults. Restore thou, their, those, restore thou those who are penitent. Now, prayers like these prompt two questions to the penitent who offers them. First, if that's really how you were, where you were then, if that's really where you were then, how have you got here now? And secondly, if you're really here now, how come you were ever there? To spell out what I mean by those colloquial questions. What I'm asking for forgiveness for is that at the time I committed my sin, I was acting completely, freely and voluntarily. I knew exactly what I was doing. Mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. I wasn't compelled. I wasn't in any way a victim of occluded rationality. And under those conditions, I went ahead and sinned. And now, acting equally freely and voluntarily, I'm asking for forgiveness for what I then did. If I then thought it was just fine to do what I did then, and there was nothing wrong with my rationality or my understanding then, how come I no longer think that? And conversely, if I now think that it was a terrible sin for me to do what I did then, how come I didn't think that at the time? Or was it that I did think that it was a terrible sin for me to do what I did then? But the thought that it was a terrible sin didn't stop me then. But if the thought that it was a terrible sin didn't stop me then, why and how does that thought stop me or disturb me now? That's the basic puzzle. I think, about clear-eyed wrongdoing, the basic puzzle about um, wrongdoing in the full sense, which I'll call absolute culpability that you get in Christianity, to which absolute forgiveness is the divine response. Now, the natural response to this puzzle is to say that there was something wrong with my freedom and voluntariness at the time I committed my son, my sin. In some way or other, I was ignorant or acting compulsively or under conditions in which my rationality was somehow included or something like that. The trouble with that response is that it changes the subject for inquiry from the puzzle cases to other cases that in the key respect are simply not the same. The whole point of the puzzle is that it reflects the evident datum of experience that at least sometimes there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with me in respect of my freedom to act at the time when I sinned. I was just as free and rational an agent then as I am now. And then the sin looked to me like the thing to do, and now it looks like a terrible thing to have done. How is this total switch in my volitional setup even possible? If this puzzle bites for us, I hope it bites for you, because it's the main thing I've got to offer today, 
it bites for me. If it bites, that's likely to be because we recognize it from our own experience. We know that we ourselves are like this sometimes. But if this is a datum of our own experience, as unfortunately it is of mine, that we switch volitionally in the sort of way I've just described, then it's extremely hard to see how to explain this datum without explaining it away. Any moral psychology like Socrates and Plato's that takes it as its founding principle that no one does wrong willingly is going to struggle with this. If no one does wrong or sins willingly, then such total changes in ethical orientation can't possibly be what they appear, they appear to be. There must be some element of compulsiveness or ignorance or irrationality somewhere in the picture, because without that, such changes are simply not possible at all. Now, this unclarity in what I'll call the Augustinian notion of sin spills over to generate further unclarity in the Augustinian notions of penitence and forgiveness. It becomes hard to see exactly what it is to repent. And it becomes hard to see how or what I'm supposed to do in forgiving someone who repents. Think about apologies. Suppose someone comes to me and says, I'm sorry for snubbing you over lunch yesterday. Often that's fine as a complete and completely understood apology in its own right. But the apologizer goes on, unfortunately, and says, I snubbed you deliberately. Given this addition, the apologizer needs to tell more story. Something more needs to be said to make sense of it. Maybe, it might be, that was because I thought you'd written that libelous review of my book. That might be the further bit that explains what's going on, implying that the apologizer now realizes that she was wrong to think that you were the reviewer. Or it might be added, I snubbed you deliberately because I was in a particularly foul temper, implying that the apologizer was carried away by passion at the time, but now sees that it was wrong to be. Or again, I snubbed you deliberately because I was having one of my episodes, implying some kind of mental health problem. Or indeed, the apologizer might say, I snubbed you deliberately because I was blinded by Arte, implying that the apologizer, like Agamemnon, was temporarily taken over by supernatural forces. What won't work as an apology is for the apology to go on like this. I snubbed you deliberately because I was thinking how contemptible you are. And I still think that the apology needs to show that things have changed in her since her rudeness yesterday to me, the forgiver. An apology that doesn't show this, but insists on the contrary, that nothing has changed at all since then. It's not an apology, it's a renewed insult. To say I was thinking how contemptible you are, and I still think that, just adds a new offense. So we've got to say something about how things have changed, and that something for absolute forgiveness of absolute wrongdoing needs to be intelligible. It needs to make sense of the change, that's happened since the offence, and in a way that provides the forgiver with some security, the offence won't be repeated. But if in committing her offence against me, the apologizer really did act fully deliberately, fully rationally, and with no exonerating ignorance or compulsion, then she can't appeal to any of those factors to exculpate herself, so then she needs to explain how what seemed like a good idea to her then, her deliberate snub to me, now seems like a terrible idea. But if she had no false beliefs then, was not acting irrationally, was not under compulsion, then what has changed? So talk of volitional switches is what we have here, and it makes things look just inexplicable. And this puzzle is very evident in one of the most famous passages in St. Paul, Romans 7, 14 to 25. That which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the Lord that it's good. 
So saying I shouldn't be doing this while you're doing it is a way of recognizing the moral law. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me dwelleth no good thing, for to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. I won't read the rest of the passage because time is short. But what's striking about this passage is St. Paul's readiness to switch from saying that he's fully responsible for his own witness, wickedness to saying that some other agency at work in him bears the real blame, sin that dwelleth in me. The obvious response to this is that if that's so, then St. Paul isn't truly responsible because it's not really him that acts any more than it was Agamemnon who stole Briseis from Achilles. Rather, according to Agamemnon in Iliad 19, it was Arte. There's a famous problem here in Homeric studies. It arises in that speech and in other places too, about double motivation or double responsibility. Is Agamemnon really to blame for his high-handedness towards Achilles? Or should we take him at his word and blame Arte? Or are both Agamemnon and Arte, blind delusion, madness, whatever you call it, are both responsible perhaps in different ways? Something like Agamemnon's model still seems to be there, generating the same puzzles before, including about double motivation in this passage of St. Paul, Romans 7.14 and following. Now what's striking about Augustine, this is almost the last thing I have time to say, is how he transforms the model. The model, the model, the model, actually I think uh, we could say either. First in one direction, the response to the Manichaeism that he himself held in his youth, which was precisely a view about, he's got an early work called De Duabus Animabus, On the Two Souls. The Manichaeans supposed that there were two souls, a good soul and a bad soul, at war in each of us, a kind of microcosm of how things are in the macrocosm of the universe at large. St. Augustine, in rejecting this view, this Manichaean view, becomes a fervent believer in free will. And then later in his career, he goes in the opposite direction. He becomes a fervent predestinarian, a kind of proto-Calvinist. But there are times and places in Augustine's writing, and, and then you have a problem of double motivation of a different sort. But there are times and places in Augustine's writing where we see the puzzle about clear-eyed wrongdoing with particular vividness. And one of them is the famous passage about the pairs in Confession Book One. Let my heart tell you, O God, what it was looking for there in the theft of the pears, that I should be so gratuitously wicked, that there should be no cause of my wickedness unless it was wickedness itself. Who will untangle that most tortuous and involved knottiness? It is filthy. I don't wish to attend to it. I don't wish to see it. That's Confessions, sorry, Book 2, Chapter 4 and Book 2, Chapter 10. There's this long meditation on the pears, which I know a lot of readers find rather tiresome, but the point of it is precisely this. The point of it is to try and explain how such an act of clear-eyed wrongdoing is possible. How can there be absolute culpability? Um, how can you be unabridgedly responsible for the bad thing you do, intelligibly repent of it, and be forgiven for precisely this kind of wrongdoing? Um, that is the puzzle. And Augustinian Christianity, I think, has this puzzle right at the heart of it. And it's a puzzle which some have mocked. For example, Nietzsche famously says, men were thought of as free so they could become guilty. Christianity is a hangman's metaphysics. That's from Twilight of the Idols. The phenomenon's unknown to the ancient Greeks, the phenomenon I mean of absolute responsibility. From Socrates to Aristotle, from Homer to Aristotle, they apparently agree that there can be no such thing because it's unintelligible. Augustine agrees that it's unintelligible, but his special step is that he says, unintelligible it may be, but it's there. 
it's part of what we are. So in, in these ways and for these reasons, Augustinian Christianity has needed the notion that I've called absolute culpability and the corresponding notion of absolute forgiveness, forgiveness of clear, free, um, clearly, clear-eyed, completely free, freely chosen wrongdoing. You don't have to be Nietzsche to have your doubts about both absolute responsibility and also absolute forgiveness. And I'll close with a quotation from Bernard Williams that brings out why you might have those doubts. In some ways, Williams writes in Shame and Necessity, this is a quotation which runs together, pages four, seven, and 68 of Shame and Necessity. In some ways, the basic ethical ideas possessed by the ancient Greeks were different from ours and also in better condition. In other respects, it's rather that we rely on much the same resources as the ancient Greeks, but we don't acknowledge the extent to which we do. How much of a shift there's been, how much we do rely on changed ideas of such things as freedom, responsibility and the individual agent is an elusive question that can't be fully answered. To answer it would involve drawing a firm line between what we think and what we merely think we think. But just as there's a problem of evil only for those who expect the world to be good, there's a problem of free will only for those who think that the notion of the voluntary can be metaphysically deepened. In truth, though it may be extended or contracted in various ways, it can hardly be deepened at all. What threatens it is the attempt to make it profound. And the effect of trying to deepen it is to put it beyond all recognition. The Greeks were not involved in these attempts. This is one of the places at which they, we encountered their gift for being, as Nietzsche said, superficial out of profundity. And so that is the problem with which I close. The problem that I'm confronting in this paper is the problem of how to make sense of the Christian notion of forgiveness. To do that, I've suggested we need to be able to make sense of the Christian notion of absolute responsibility that goes with that notion of absolute forgiveness. And that is a hard task. I do not want to sound completely negative in closing. I think that perhaps something can be done to make better sense of these notions than William's pessimism perhaps suggests. But I do think that there's something deeply puzzling about this whole bundle of ideas. And so in this talk, um, unlike some philosophers, perhaps I haven't started with something that was a puzzle and ended up with a nice, clear, unproblematic take on the area. And if anything, I've taken you in the other direction. Perhaps you started off thinking that this area was unproblematic and now think that it's deeply problematic. Well, if I'm right, then that too is one way for a philosophy paper to go. Um, it's, it is at any rate the way this paper has gone. Thank you for your attention.